This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Every week on Hire, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 77 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello, from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood, and I got my voice back. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about debugging. Now, I, I know that this is mostly for my benefit, because you guys don't write bugs into your code. But I'm kind of curious, you know, there are a lot of different ways to find bugs when you're developing or writing your code. What seem to be the most effective ways for you guys to locate problems that you see in your iOS or Mac program? That's a pretty broad question. But I, I think one thing that is not always possible, but is super, super helpful for any kind of debugging is you get a problem report from a user or a tester, or maybe even just another developer, and you're supposed to work on it. Typically, for me, the first step is to try to reproduce that problem. Sometimes that's that's actually really difficult or maybe even not quite possible, but in general, if you can reproduce a bug, you're much, much closer to finding it. And if you can't reproduce it, the whole problem is, is so much harder. I was going to say, in a lot of cases, that's the hard part because you have to figure out which edge case they're triggering in order to get the bug. Yeah, definitely. So there have been plenty of times where it's taken me a really long time to figure out how to reproduce a bug. And then as soon as I can reproduce it, oh, it's no big deal to fix it. Uh, it's it's actually the figuring out how to trigger the bug that's the hard part. Yeah, because when I'm writing my code, I mean, I'll fire up the emulator, or if it's web development, I'll fire up the browser, and I'll exercise the happy path. Oh, yep, works, you know. So, yeah, and the other thing is, is, you know, people have different devices, you know, so iOS 8 will run on the iPhone 5, 5S, and 6, and so, do you ever run into issues that are device-specific? I would say that's been less common, certainly for performance, which is, in, in some ways, doing performance optimization has similarities with debugging. But there are definitely performance differences between devices. But that's uh, mostly an Android problem, huh? I'm just kidding. Well, yeah. Well, and I was actually going to say the screen size differences. So, I've worked on universal apps that are on you know, that work on both the iPad and the iPhone. And you can definitely have bugs that are specific to either the iPad or the iPhone because of differences in the UI on the two. Yeah, I think we're getting to the point where with, you know, the iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus, there are enough different layout differences that it, it you can get things where 
yeah, this doesn't lay out right in iPhone 6. Or maybe if you have a 6 Plus, you've got a totally different layout because your screen size is different. So we're definitely getting into the, into that area. Yeah, I think it, it's always been a good idea to have uh, multiple devices to test on, but I think it's getting even more important. And I've heard from a lot of developers that were buying an iPhone 6 that, you know, that wanted the 6 because of the size, but they were going to buy a 6 Plus also because they want both to test on the two different screen sizes. And that kind of gets expensive, but it can be pretty important for really being able to thoroughly test your app on the devices it's actually going to be running on. That's right. It's my test device. That's why I'm spending this money, right? <laughs> I like the way you think. So, well, I, I tell people that every time I buy a new iPhone. You're getting the new iPhone. You just got the new one last year. And I say, yeah, well, it's my job. There you go. If I did a little more iOS development, I think I could convince my wife. But So I'm curious. Let's say that you find the bug and you can duplicate it, say, on the emulator or on a device that you actually have access to, you know, your own phone. What tools do you use to figure out uh, where the problem is from there? The real standard tool that I use almost all the time, and I think the same would be true for all developers, is just the debugger. So if you can, you know, if you if you have some idea of where a problem is occurring in your code, you set a breakpoint and single step through, and that that's often the only thing you really need to do to actually track down the source of the problem, because that lets you really inspect exactly what's going on in your program every step of the way. Logging, so there are cases where that doesn't really work very well. Maybe you've got some timing issue particularly for multi-threading problems, this comes up. But there are cases where just breaking in the debugger is affects the problem somehow or is difficult for one reason or another, and then and, and you can kind of fall back to lo- caveman debugging or using NS logs to, <laughs> to figure out where things are going off the rails. I have to say that I tend to opt more toward the caveman debugging and just have it print a ton of crap and then go, oh, <laughs> it's right there. And then, and you know, and then I pull it all back out. I find that that's a little bit lower impedance, at least to start with, than setting up the debugger and setting a breakpoint. Well, that actually brings up an interesting side point, which is that I found it really helpful to have a lot of log statements in my app. And, and typically, uh, what we do, like at Mixed in Key, what we do is we have a we have a debug log macro that in debug builds. So that's the builds developers are running. There's a lot of extra stuff logged out to the console but that automatically gets turned off in release builds that users will see. What I've done in, in some of the things I've written myself is, is made it so there's a debug mode that the app can be put into where it does print all that extra log information. And then when I get bug report or a problem report from a user, I can have them run the app in debug mode and send me the log, and it gives me a lot better idea of what's going on than they would be able to describe just from what the UI is doing. And often I can actually see where things went wrong. And it it usually, really what it usually does is helps me reproduce the bug. Is there a good technique for that, for, you know, getting it to switch modes, like on a setting screen? Or is there another way that you usually do that? Well, so I have, I actually have not done that in an iOS app. I've done okay. it in Mac apps. And what I, what I usually do in the Mac, in Mac apps is make it so if you just hold down a, a hotkey, like hold down the option key or something, when you start the app up, it will go into debug mode. I can do that on my phone. Hold down the option key. I'm just kidding. Well, so I wonder, I, don't, I mean, I wonder if there's any restriction on that. Does Apple care if you put in a thing in your settings menu that says run in debug mode, that kind of thing? I don't know. I don't know either. If it's a Mac app, then you can just have them access the file system and send you the log. Right. Well, there's actually an app on on the Mac uh, on OS X called Console. It's in the Utilities folder. Mm-hmm. And that displays system logs 
that's what it's made for. And it can copy and paste out of it, but it can also export logs as files. Uh, and they're also just stored on the system in a, in a, somewhere in the library folder. So they're, they're completely user accessible quite easily on the Mac. Uh, on iOS, you can get them as well. So we have two people at Mixed and Key who do testing. That's their job. And they certainly know how to use the, what, what is it? The iPhone configurator app. And you can also use Xcode to get system logs off of an iOS device. And I, and I, I think that's really not beyond the capability of a, of a motivated user, the kind of user that, is really helpful in tracking down bugs or like beta testers. They can do that stuff if they're somebody that knows their way around. That makes sense. So I've got a, a challenge whenever there's a, I get an app with a lot of logging things. It's how do you parse through that log and make sense? So maybe you're having an event happens when your controller shows up or something else shows up and you've got hundreds of lines between the two events that you're trying to track. So what are some ways that we can kind of make sense of these huge log files? Now you're asking the hard questions. I don't know. I'm not sure I have a good a good answer for that. I, I agree that that can be a, a problem. Sometimes you get a log with just all kinds of stuff in it, and you know, 99% of it is completely normal. I'm I'm talking now about this kind of debug logging that I was talking about, but 99% of it is normal stuff, normal operation. And really figuring out where the problem is and how that's related to the stuff that's come before can be difficult. But I, I don't have a good answer for you, Jane. Do you have an answer? Well, let's just talk about some techniques. Like one thing, we've got a nice log sitting in there in our Xcode window. And, you know, Command F, we can kind of format our, our logs. So there's something we can, search, we can through. search for. Yeah, so we have a search string, so we can go through that. I've heard of people actually writing up Ruby scripts that just kind of go through the logs and show you the interesting things. So if you have some kind of convention for what you're logging, different events, and can kind of tie them back to something else, something you can separate logically, and you can, you can kind of see more of the important stuff that you're trying to th- stuff and ignore a lot of the noise. Yeah, so that's actually, I typically will prefix my log statements with with the sort of the module they're part of or, you know, feature they're part of, the subsystem they're part of, so that then you can filter your log down. If you're debugging a problem with networking, you really only want to see the logging that's related to networking. And so maybe you prefix all of those with networking, and it makes your log easier to search. So that is something I've done. That makes sense. Then you're doing your command F, command G, you can trigger, you can find your way through the log console window. Yeah. And you can also, I've seen where they generate like some kind of uh, ID. So it can be like a GUID, which is a globally unique identifier or, you know, some other string, you know, so it can be, you know, like if it's a podcasting app, you know, you can do episode dash and then some identifier for the episode. So you know that you've entered that episode and come out of it or a process or things like that. And so you can put that information in there and then you can essentially trace just one thread of execution. The nice thing about iPhone apps in particular, though, is that you don't have multiple users using the same app at the same time. And so in a lot of cases, the log is going to be sequential. And so if you can figure out, you know, when they enter a particular view or when they do a particular thing, then you can start from there and see where they went and what may have caused the issue. Whereas on, you know, especially server apps or Mac apps where somebody might remotely access the machine and so two people are using it at once, you'll have two threads of execution at the same time. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, at least on the Mac, the log system logs have a process ID, so you actually can filter between multiple copies of a, of a given process, but it, it is easier when you know you've only got one user using the yes. app and doing things in a linear sequence. 
Do you ever find that your logging is insufficient? In other words, you know, the information that you need to debug it is not being logged? Absolutely. And that's actually, that brings up something that's good to mention. And I actually just most recently did this like a couple hours ago, which is you, maybe you've got a user that's reporting a problem and you've kind of got some idea of where it's going on, but you can't reproduce it. You can't figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, I've certainly many times made a special build for somebody that just logs a bunch of extra data around the area where I think the problem might be happening and then send it to them and ask them to run it. And that can help you get diagnostic information that's sort of targeted you didn't anticipate, but it allows you to sort of respond to what they've told you so far to further narrow things down. How much technical knowledge do they usually need in order to to do that? Can you give them a build that they can just, like, that my mom could put on her phone? Well, typically when I'm working with this kind of these kinds of problems, it's with with our beta testers or with, you know, internal testers. So I'm not so sure about giving it to just a regular end user. Sometimes you kind of need to read into your communications with them how skilled they are. So I've definitely had regular users where, you know, it comes out that they're actually a developer or whatever, and then they're going to be comfortable doing anything you ask them to do. But if it's just somebody who bought their first iPhone yesterday, probably not. So what are some techniques to getting those debug builds out to beta customers? Well, if you're on the Mac, like I usually am, you zip it up and email it to them. You send it to OK. That's the but, question. <laughs> uh, but if on, on iOS, you can, of course, do ad hoc builds manually, but we usually have used, in the past, we've used TestFlight. That works pretty well. That's sort of in flux right now because Apple bought it and they're making changes and, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of half re-released, but Test flight. Um, there are some other services that do that same kind of thing, but that can be really useful when you find those kind of motivated users that will help you test and debug and, and track down problems. Is this test flight in the sense like an ad hoc build where you have their the device ID? Yeah, well, I, yeah. So I'm actually talking about the test flight service that Apple bought, and you do need to get their device ID. And so, but we've had that happen before. We've had somebody report a problem, and we really need their help to track it down to debug it. And so, you know, once we figured out that they're going to be helpful, we add them to our beta tester pool and you can get good people that way because, you you know, they're already motivated users. They were using your app and sending you feedback before you asked them to. And it's good to have those kind of people in your pool. So that sounds good. So you're limited to how many users? What is it? A hundred? Something like that? It it was a hundred. It seems like they've upped that, but I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head now. We've got less than a hundred for sure. Mixed in key. Another option is to do, if you do an enterprise build, you have a larger limit on what you can, what users you can have upload or download this, the app. That's one other approach, a little more tedious because you're mixing kind of downloads. And I'm not sure how well that would work if you're, if they have the same bundle ID or not, or if they need to, or if that works with the provisioning profile. But that's the way I've kind of distributed things to selected users without having to get their information, you know, going, having them sign up through TestFlight. Mm-hmm. So that's a yeah, that's another good option. And I think particularly if you're doing enterprise apps, enterprise distribution makes a lot of sense. Uh, I just looked it up, and I, I guess Apple increased the limit from a hundred to a thousand users per oh, app. Oh, nice! At least for test flight. So that's a big improvement. So in this case, with the, with the test flight distribution, using the same bundle ID, so you have access to all the information they've created from the app. So if they they got themselves in a weird state, you can kind of see what they were doing. 
Is that how you do it, or are you changing the bundle ID so it's a separate app? No, we've used the same bundle ID. But that actually reminds me that another thing, another sort of capability that you can put in your app that's useful that, that we've done is that typically the apps I work on are, are not the kind of apps that download some data from a web service and show it in a table view kind of thing. They're really content creation apps. So they always have user data, and it's not user data that can easily be replicated if it gets lost or if something happens to it. And it also means that sometimes bugs turn up that are specific to the documents that, that a user has created. And so it, the point is on iOS, you want to have ways for users to get that data out of the app for various reasons. But one of those reasons is that then they can send it to you to debug problems in it. There have been times where, you know, the bug is that they do some sequence of things and the data that the app saves gets corrupted or is wrong somehow. And it can be really hard to troubleshoot that if you can't actually look at the the data that's problematic. So I'm wondering a little bit, most of the debugging that I wind up doing, I mean, the harder debugging is definitely in the case of some user using your app and getting all the information you need from them. I am curious, in the course of just regular app development, what tools do you use when you run into something unexpected there? So nobody's actually seen it yet except you. You're just adding some feature to the app and it either doesn't do what it's supposed to do or it breaks, fails, crashes, whatever you want to call it. I consider that part of, even though you call that debugging, that's really just a big part of development in general, right? Is that you're, you're, you're working on something, you're continuously testing it while you're working on it, and as you're going, unless you're really, really good or really, really lucky, things never work perfectly the first time. You write a new feature, it's never going to be perfect the first, you know, as soon as you hit compile the first time. And so that kind of test, debug, development cycle is just part of development. And again, I think the debugger is just the debugger in Xcode or LLDB is really the main tool that you're going to be using for that kind of thing. Breakpoints and single stepping are simple but hugely powerful. Yeah, definitely. I find I use the debugger a lot more than logging statements. And I think a lot of that comes from the background you had before you were doing iPhone development. If you're coming from a more Ruby web background, it's easier to do a lot of logging statements. If you come from a more client-side development background, you're kind of used to the GDB, LLDB, so you're a little more comfortable with setting a breakpoint and looking things around. I think it's a lot of it com- comes down to what you were doing before. In you know, early development, I was doing like embedded Linux, where I got I had no other way of debugging. I could do logging, but if I wanted to get inside something, I was doing GDB and had to learn it pretty well. Like you get to the point where I don't use the features in the various debugging tools that heavily. I think that's kind of, it's almost kind of an anti-pattern. It's like, if you learn every little thing of how to, to use your debugger, that's kind of a anti-pattern in itself. You know, if you're writing the code the right way, you shouldn't need to. So as I've gained experience in the development world, I find I'm using less and less of the heavy features of the debugger and just kind of setting a breakpoint. Okay. What happened? I expect did what I expect to happen happen and kind of going from there. That's an interesting idea, but I think you're right that. As you get better at the development you're doing, you probably need fewer of the advanced debugger features. I think I, when I've, you know, kind of gone down the path of trying to use some advanced technique in the debugger, it's often been when it was because I really had no idea what I was doing in trying to understand the problem. And as you get better, you have sort of a better sense for how things can go wrong and how to simply find them. That's not always true, of course, but that's interesting. Yeah, if this index in the loop is greater than this and this other thing is this, then you break point. Or then you go up to and your next stack frame above this is something else. I mean, you can get some crazy stuff in there, but 
I don't really lean into it. Yeah, so I was actually going to, I'm going to save part of this, but for later, but there are some really sophisticated features in modern debuggers, but I I think 99.9% of the time those are not really necessary, maybe not even useful because most problems are, if you understand your code well, are just easier to track down than those kind of features. Then you would require those kind of features to track down, so. My experience is that the debugger is when you either don't know where to look or the other circumstance, you know, because you mentioned the first circumstance, the other circumstance is if it's complicated and it's complicated to the point where I can't easily look at it and know what's going on. And I don't know how to simplify it to the point where I can just say, oh, well, it's obviously here. Then a lot of times I have to go and put the debugger in, set up a breakpoint, halt the world and say, okay. Where is everything? Okay, this is what I expect, and then step through it. But that also then indicates to me that I may need to think about refactoring my code. Definitely. And another thing that we're probably glossing over is if you're coming from a different background, like debugging an Objective-C is quite a bit different than other languages. Mm -hmm. We should probably talk about some of the quirks we encountered the first time we were doing this. Like, you know, what's the difference between print and print object, P and PO? I don't know. What's going on there? Yeah, that's a good point, and that actually brings up something that I think a lot of new developers don't know, which is that when you're stopped in the Xcode debugger, you've got an LLDB console, and you can use the whole LLDB command line interface, which is quite powerful. But yeah, so I remember at one point that being confusing to me, and and PO prints out an Objective-C object, and it actually prints out the string that you get when you call description, or send the description message to that object. And P is for printing primitives like ints and floats and all the, all the stuff that comes from C, but sort of one of those parts of Objective-C that's baggage from C that really does trip people up when they're first starting. So if you're creating a new object and you want to have a reasonable debug output when you print it, you just have to create a string with the relevant information in your description and return that. Does that sound right? Yeah, and I that's something I always do. If I, you know, if I'm creating a, an Objective-C class that's a model object or any other kind of object for that matter, I it's one of the very first things I do is override description and put something useful in there because it really makes your life easier when you're in the debugger or even if you're just going to use logging because, of course, NSLog will also use the output of the description method when you log objects using it. So what what about, James, you said that you have you actually got to where you could use GDB really well just on the command line, and I wonder if you use the LLDB command line very much in Xcode. Most of my GDB foo has been lost to the lost to the ages. Most of what I do is yeah, just out of the LODB command line that's in Xcode. You know, printing objects, getting the frame, seeing the bounds, that type of stuff. So I don't I don't get into crazy stuff because you know you have access to the stack frames and the different threads in the debugging windows. So I don't see myself getting into it that much. When I was doing this before, it was embedded work and there was no GUI really, so I had to do that all myself. But for Xcode, you know, it does what I need to do. Just go into the console. I know there are some people that, for whatever reason, they do use that command line. I had an experience where I was sitting in the labs at WWDC last year and had a problem that I was trying to debug in my app. And this is always kind of fun at, at WWDC, but the problem was with a, a table view on OS X. And the engineer that I was there with is the guy who wrote NS table view, you know, so he, he knows it better than anyone in the world. And I had been working on this problem for quite a while or I wouldn't have taken it to him and his fingers just started flying across the keyboard in the in the debugger and within 20 seconds he had found the problem 
told me what it was and how to fix it. And it was pretty amazing to watch. And he, he was doing it all on the command line, not because he had to, I don't think, but he was just more comfortable that way. And definitely it comes down to kind of your background, what you were doing before you're doing app development. You know, if you're comfortable with GDB and the, the command line stuff, you can fly on it. So one of the things I do use the command line interface for that besides like PO to print things out is in LLDB, there's a expression command. It's EXPR. And that will just let you run a line of Objective-C code that you, well, it'll, it'll actually, yeah, let you run an expression. But the thing I use that for is you can set a value of a variable to something else. For example, maybe you're stepping through an algorithm and you see that a, a value is not what you expected it to be, but you kind of want to test the rest of your code path as if that value were right. You can break after the line where it goes wrong and, and fix it and then see what happens just as a debugging technique. So that's that's really the only other thing I use the command line interface for, but there's a whole lot there that I know that I don't know or that I know about but just don't find use for a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that you have a lot of C-type functionality in the command line. You know, if you ever tried to print out the bounds of a, of a view, you know, you always get some kind of error because it doesn't know what, what the type is, but you can cast it to CGrect, and then you'll get a nice output. Yeah, someday they'll fix that because that, I don't know, it just seems to me like they could make that, make Xcode smart enough to figure that out. But yeah, you're, that's, that's, a, that's a really big one, right? Casting the return value of some method you're calling to what you know it is because Xcode doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Can't figure it out. Or sometimes if you have a dot notation accessing a property, LLDB will handle it better if you change it to a message. Use the brackets. A lot of times it'll think, oh, I know what that is now. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't seem to know that there's a property with that name. Well, so kind of going back to what you were asking about, Chuck, besides the debugger, another really powerful tool that Xcode gives us is instruments. And, and you know all about instruments, right? Oh, I don't Working know. Working at mixed and key. Yeah, like right. Guitars, no, no, our, our customers are <laughs> DJs. They just pull out a laptop and hit play, right? Oh, there you go. No. Yeah. So it, so instruments though, that the debugging tool is super powerful and that can help you instrument, meaning put test instruments into your app and look at lots of different aspects of your app's runtime behavior, including memory usage, CPU usage, thread usage, disk IO, all kinds of stuff like that. Graphics card utilization. And, you know, it's something kind of experienced iOS and Mac developers know about, but it's one of those things that beginners sometimes take a while to, to get into and to learn. And, and once you really get a feel for it, you, it, it's, it's a really powerful tool and can help in a lot of different scenarios. So, so I think we should talk about that. So what exactly does it give you then? What kind of instrumentation can you put into your code with instruments? Well, Instruments is built on an open source app called Dtrace. And I'm not a Dtrace expert by any means, but as I understand it, you can actually write your own instruments, so you can sort of the sky's the limit. But it comes with instruments to help you track down a bunch of common stuff. I think probably the most common ones are the time profiler instrument. So that lets you see which parts of your code are using the most CPU or, or actually really which parts of your code your app is spending the most time in. So you could... If you're doing something and it's taking a long time and you want to optimize performance, you'd use the time profiler to figure out where the bottleneck in your code is to see, you know, there's there's this for loop that's taking forever. That's where the app's spending all its time. And then you know where to focus your optimization efforts. It actually lets you drill all the way down to the lowest level calls, like all the way down to the system calls so you can figure out where time is being wasted. I think another 
really common one, probably the, the, the next most common one or most useful one is the leaks instrument, which is, well, out, there's, so there's an allocations instrument and a leaks instrument, but those help you figure out where memory is being used by your app. The allocations instrument in particular will show you which parts of your code are allocating lots of memory, and it also helps you see which objects are in memory that are taking up a lot of memory. So you can, the instrument will show you, say your app is using, currently using 50 megabytes of memory and, you know, 40 megabytes of, of that is instances of this one class. And then maybe you're allocating too many of those in a tight loop and you need an auto release pool. Maybe you're forgetting, you know, you're storing them all in an array and never, in a cache and never flushing it and, Anyway, it can help you find those kinds of problems with memory usage, so that's really useful. Yeah, it's definitely useful for media apps, like what you're working on. If you have, if you're dealing with images, they can get quite large. Sound files, those things can quite get quite large, and if you don't clean them up correctly, you know your app just goes down, and you don't really get that much information on what's happening. So, going through the allocations instrument is very useful for those kind of apps. Yeah, I think on iOS, where memory is still really at a premium you know i mean i think in the desktop world a, a while ago we kind of moved into this mindset of oh, well memory's cheap and there's lots of it and besides your app's not going to get killed if you use too much it just will slow down because it swaps the disk right but on ios that's still not the case and really knowing where your app is using memory is super important did i leave any instruments out james are there ones that you use that are useful and valuable yeah leaks and allocation are good I mean, sometimes if you're getting into performance problems, you want to actually see the CPU usage. I had some things where we were doing a lot of DSP type work and, you know, we were actually constrained by CPU usage. So I've used those type of things, but I think leaks and allocations are the ones I go to most often. I think they're the most useful. Okay. So I do a lot of mixing keys. Apps are quite CPU heavy because we do audio analysis and various other things that really tax the CPU, and, and so performance optimization is really important for us, so, and, and time profiler that I talked about is useful for that. Um, I've used, so I've used the OpenGL ES analysis a few times. There's a core animation instrument that can be useful for tracking down graphics performance problems, but I, I think the time profiler and the, the leaks slash allocations instrument are the really workhorse ones that get used all the time. Definitely. So what are some other tools that we can use to get information, either from our QA departments, from the CEOs, or from users? Are there some ways that we can get better information about what's happening if people are finding bugs in the field? One thing that I've seen, mostly on the Mac, but occasionally on iOS, is if a program crashes, sometimes it sends a crash report back, or it'll ask you if you want to send a crash report back on the Mac. Yeah, I was I was actually going to... I, I thought to talk about that earlier, and then it had kind of slipped my mind. But crash reporting in your app can be really valuable on iOS. There, well, I, I, so I guess Apple actually announced at WWDC that they're going to finally send people or let developers get the crash reports for their apps through iTunes Connect and get them for real, like everyone. At least that's what I understood. But even so, there are, there are third-party crash reporting services for iOS, like Crashlytics and Hockey App and TestFlight used to be one that you could use for that. Well, so one thing on the Mac that I've noticed is, you know, if an app crashes, you get this dialogue that says, would you like to send this crash report to Apple? And a lot of users don't realize that that crash report goes to Apple. It does not go to the developer because I've gotten plenty of emails that say, the app crashed and I sent you the crash report. And I have to explain to them, no, you sent the crash report to Apple. I don't get that at all. Oh, really? Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, they don't know, right? They don't know who put that window up on their screen. And I think they just assume that it's going to go to whoever wrote the app. Because after all, it's a lot more useful to the developer of the app that crashed than it is to Apple, really, right? Anyway, so crash reports, get, getting crash reports from your users is, is very valuable. And I think it's almost to the point where you, as a responsible developer, you really need to be doing that because you might release an update and it's crashing for some significant portion of the user base without crash reports. If it's really a common thing, uh, you would have caught it in testing if you were going to be able to reproduce it easily. And so being, getting a crash report that helps you track that down is very important and valuable. So yeah, how do you get those I, then if Apple is gobbling them up? Well, I'll answer that question too. I generally push for something like Crashlytics, which will you install in, along with your app and it will actually send you stack traces of what's happened when you get the crashes. So yeah, I, pref- I always, if I have influence on the project, I recommend using something something like that. Yeah, same with me. Personally, I, I kind of partial to hockey app. I don't like that menu bar app that Crashlytics uses. But anyway, any of those sort of crash reporting tools that are out there for iOS apps can be used to gather these crash reports. And then they do get sent to you instead of to Apple. And like I said, I think this is supposed to be changing where Apple is going to send crash reports for your app to you. So you don't need one of, you don't strictly need one of those. They may still offer features that are nice, but like doing automatic symbolication, I'm not really sure if Apple's going to do that or not. Uh, on the Mac, we actually have our own crash reporter. Mixed and Key has our own crash reporter code, but it's, it's really pretty simple because crash reports on the Mac are just saved in a system folder. And so our crash reporter basically on launch just checks to see if there are new crash logs in that folder for, for the app. And if there are, it puts up a window and says, would you like to send this? You know, we noticed the app crash. Would you like to send us the problem report? And we have a box there that the user can type into any like, steps that they were, you know, whatever they were doing when the app crashed to maybe try to get some more information from them. And that has been really valuable. And it's actually been valuable from a user support, kind of customer support point of view, because when we get a crash report, sometimes, you know, if, if they've if they've entered stuff in that box, we will email them. We, the developers, see it and we'll email them and say, hey, we saw that the app crashed. Thanks for reporting it. And we want some more information. And People are often quite pleasantly surprised that you cared enough about their problem to get back to them and try to get help fixing it. So the crash reporting leads to a different question. What do you do when you get the crash report and it's none of your code? You know, it's all in some system thing. It only occurs in iOS 7. Do you have any techniques for handling those kind of crashes? No. Does anybody? I mean, I think in theory, sometimes those crashes, you can actually get, if you really know what you're doing, you can get a lot of information out of crash report like that. But it's kind of one of those things where most of the time you feel like, well, I basically have to throw up my hands because there's not a single line of my code here. And unless I can reproduce this crash, I just have no hope of tracking it down. So I don't have a good answer for that. What about you? Well, I'm just trying to figure out how to explain this to my clients. You know, it's like, well, it's a crash here. Yes, we don't want crashes to happen, but I'm not exactly sure what we're doing here to cause this. Well, I think there's sort of triage that should be done on crash reports. So, you know, if you're getting a hundred of those a day and it's the same crash report, it kind of doesn't, at some point you got to say, well, yeah, this is not in our code, but it's a serious problem and we got to do whatever we can to fix it. If you get one, you know, and it's the only time you've ever seen that crash and it, and it, it makes no sense to you. You know, I'm not saying 
all crashes are not important, but prioritization is a pretty good thing. And so sometimes you do just have to say, well, we can't figure this out, and we, but it's not that big of a deal. Definitely, but I never liked that conversation. <laughs> well, that, no, I know what you mean. I mean, what it really comes down to then, you know, being a contractor is do they trust you, you know? Are you pulling their leg because you honestly don't know how to solve the problem, you know, because you're incompetent? Or are you telling them because there's just not a good answer to the actual, you know, situation? Sometimes there's a way to work that out and sometimes there isn't. But if you're an employee somewhere, sometimes you have other options because, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to go explore this. And, you know, you're costing them salary. You're not costing them time that you're going to bill them for later. Yeah. Well, so just from a a political or relationship point of view, it kind of does come down to your expertise and and the trust they have in you. But that is a hard conversation to to have, and I've had it before. You don't want them to feel like you're just trying to get out of work or or trying to pass the buck or whatever. But sometimes there are problems that are... At least, you know, maybe they're fixable, but it's just going to take such an investment of time that it's really not worth it to fix a crash that two people have ever seen. Yeah. All and right. I think well, that's true for bugs in general, not just crashes. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, some of us have uh, stuff going on this afternoon, so I'm going to start heading us toward the picks. Um, is there anything, though, that we absolutely should have covered that we didn't before we do that? We can talk about really fast. Well, I, I think on crash reporting, one one thing that I I did want to talk about is symbolication. So that that's when you get a crash report, um, just a raw crash report for a Mac or iOS app, it does not have human read. So like it doesn't have your method names in it, right? It's just got these numbers that correspond to locations in the the program code. And symbolicating is the process of taking those logs and figuring out how the numbers in in the call stacks relate to actual like method names and lines of code in your source code. So the, the way you can symbolicate those is you have to save out the .dsym files, which are debug symbols when you build your app. And those are stored in Xcode's archive if you, if you use the Xcode archive feature. On iOS, Xcode will actually symbolicate logs for you. So if you've got the dsym for the version of the app that the crash log is for, you can just drag the crash log into Xcode and it will into the organizer and it will symbolicate it for you. On the Mac, it's been kind of a mess for quite a while, but I, I, I guess I'll make it this one of my picks, but there are some tools out there for doing Mac crash log symbolication that can make that process easier. That's something I think that confuses new people, because you get this log back and it's like, well, there's a bunch of numbers here. I don't know how this relates to my code. Magic numbers. Those always make me so happy. All right. Well, cool. That's a lot of uh, great information and advice. Should we get to the picks? Let's do it. All right, Jane, do you want to start us off with picks? All right, I'm going to do two picks. My first pick is Apple Crisp. It's delicious. Everyone should have some Apple Crisp this season. It's a good season for apples, so go ahead and find someone who knows how to make an Apple Crisp and go ahead. Second, I saw a blog post from John Syracuse on the Swift language and very insightful, talking about it's kind of pedigree is kind of a systems language, but modern features and talking about the different pros and cons of that approach. So I thought that was a great article among many that he's done, but this was a particularly good one. So those are my picks. Nice. Uh, Andrew, what are your picks? I've got three picks today. So the first one is a, is a music pick, but it kind of, is kind of also programming related. It's the album IBM 1401, a user's manual by Johan Johansson. He's a, an Icelandic composer and, and this album is sort of a, 
I don't know how to, I guess it's sort of a concept album about the IBM 1401 data processing computer, which his dad was, was a technician on the first one of those that was imported into Iceland, like in the, in the sixties, I think. And, um, his dad actually figured out how to make that computer make really simple music. And he found some tapes of that music his dad made with it and turned it into a, I mean, it used it as the inspiration for a whole album. And I, I really like the music, but it's also got that geek appeal. And then my next pick is BB Edit. So as we record, BB Edit 11 was just announced. BB Edit is a text editor for the Mac, and it's been around for, like, I don't know, since the early 90s, 20-plus years. And it's it's just really well done. It's, it's the favorite of a lot of old-school Mac programmers, I think. I don't use it for writing. You know, I, I'm in Xcode most of the time, but... When I need a, a sort of a separate text editor, BB Edit's usually the one I go to. It's not free, but I think it's well worth the money. And they do have a, as I recall, they have a free version called Text Wrangler that's a little bit stripped down, but it's sort of the same underlying engine. And then my last pick is an app called Mac Symbolicator. So I, I was just alluding to this, but uh, symbolicating crash logs on the Mac has been a little bit of a pain for the last few years. It seems like every time I come up with a process to symbolicate a crash log using the debugger or whatever it breaks with a, you know, with the next release of Xcode or whatever. And I, and I never quite know what's gone wrong, but this is an app that makes it really simple to symbolicate your crash logs. You just drag your debug symbols file into the crash file into this app and it symbolicates it for you. So that's Mac Symbolicator. Those are my picks. Very cool. All right, I'm just going to kind of promote one thing that I'm working on right now, and that is if you're interested in learning how to write mobile apps with JavaScript, uh, we're going to be doing a roundtable discussion with several of the creators and maintainers of the various uh, ways of doing that. If you text MobileJS to 38470, then you'll get the information about it. It's going to be on November 5th, and uh, yeah, so you'll get a text, you'll you'll get all the information, and uh, we'll kind of move ahead from there. Um, I'm still working on putting the website up for it, but it should be up by the time the show comes out. So anyway, that's my only pick. And yeah, so we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thanks for coming, guys. Thank you. Yeah. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 